You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this podcast, a keynote from Partitions and Borders, a comparative and interdisciplinary conference. The conference was jointly organised by University College Dublin and Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and took place in UCD on the 24th and 25th of May, 2018. The conference received the financial support of the UCD Research Seed Funding Programme, Decade of Centenary's Internal Award Scheme 2016-2018, and also the support of the School of History, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the UCD International Office. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. The first keynote of the conference was given by Sucheta Mahajan from JNU, New Delhi. Her lecture, Bearing Witness to Silence as Sanctuary, Remembering and Forgetting in Oral Histories of Conflict in India and Ireland, was introduced by Tim McMahon from Marquette University. Welcome back. We are about to have our first uh, plenary. Uh, and uh, it is from one of the conference's uh, conveners, Professor Sushetta uh, Mahajan uh, from the Center for Historical Studies at uh, JNU in India. Uh, she has taught for 24 years and has three years as a research assistant and associate for oral history projects prior to her teaching. Uh, uh, her research interests include modern Indian history, contemporary Indian history, with a focus on the themes of colonialism, nationalism, and communalism, decolonization in a comparative framework, and history and social theory. Uh, she's taught courses or parts of courses on histories and theories of nationalism, Indian politics in the late colonial period, histories of partition, and colonialism as a world system. So uh, very much uh, 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 central to our discussions here uh, today uh, and tomorrow. Bearing witness to silence as sanctuary, remembering and forgetting in oral histories of conflict in India and Ireland is her topic today. This paper uh, today, it's looking at what I see as a fairly complex relationship between memory and history in the context of two sites and two moments of conflict. These are the partition of India and the troubles in Ireland, respectively. Of course, it is more than a coincidence, as we know, and this has already been raised in the morning session, that the imperial power in both cases is the United Kingdom. However, the unraveling of the tangled skeins of colonial policy, which has already been done in the first session so well, um, and which is the subject of the entangled histories of empire, uh, this is not going to be the subject of my talk today. I'm taking up, as you can see, a very small slice. Um, I intend to take you through the working of memory, showing how it plays out in the phases of relative peace which follow upon dark times. Memory can accentuate difference already existing in historical times, as is the case with some oral history uh, initiatives in India. Or it can take the protagonists beyond the chasm, help her transcend the divide between communities, as happens very often in the testimonies of the Holocaust, where, as we know with the Shoah, there has been a whole lot of uh, work in this area with trained psychiatrists coming in, etc. So it could be the case that memory of conflict 
may bind the victim to a past which is essentially divisive, or it could be the case that memory of conflict could transform the survivor fundamentally, free her from her past and herself as a victim, and perhaps allow her to live a life which is more rooted in the present and future rather than mired in the past. So questions about the relationship between remembering and forgetting are being raised today across disciplinary confines and in varied contexts. When it comes to conflict, the wisdom in recent decades has seemed to privilege remembering, be it titles like recovering voices or remembering partition or the other side of silence, the titles of books on these areas hint at this privileging of remembering. Perhaps those on the side of the virtues of silence, those on the side of the importance of forgetting, may need to speak up a bit more. Maybe it is not even a case of either remembering or forgetting as binaries. Perhaps we need to look at a dialectic between the two. Do we need to develop alternative modes of remembering and forgetting rather than uncritically accepting the imperative of bearing witness, to use the title of a very well-known book by Elie Wiesel on the Holocaust and oral testimonies? This address today is a plea for smaller, yet less universal, more culture-specific, local ways, perhaps, of looking back remembering, forgetting, engaging with our pasts. The writing on memory and history, as I just outlined above, in the context of partition, uh, has usually seen the two, that is memory and history, as counterposed to each other. Aga Shahid Ali, a well-known poet, um, wrote in an essay called Farewell, he said, my memory is again in the way of your history. And you would know countless such examples from elsewhere. One of our very well-known historians of the partition of India, Gyanendra Pandey, writing in a book called Remembering Partition, said, there is a wide chasm between the historian's apprehension of 1947, that is the date for our partition, and what we might call a more popular survivor's account of it, between history and memory as it were, unquote. Testimonies of survivors, he would have it, hold up a truer mirror than what he calls disciplinary history, which he sees as tired, flawed, complicit in the agenda of the state. For Pandey, the Holocaust is taken as a reference point to understand violence of that kind of scale uh, as it occurred in the partition of India with Elie Wiesel's imperative to bear witness and Pierre Nora's Les Lieux de Memoir being the context in which his argument is framed. Here I would only like to emphasize that the imperative of remembering adopted from the Holocaust is simplistically counterposed to silence. Where Urvashi Butalia, a book that um, was referred to in the uh, session in the morning, uh, evokes the other side of silence, Pandey speaks of what he calls an imposed need to forget. He means from the point of view of the nation state. 
I have elsewhere pointed to the dialectic between remembering and forgetting. Silence and forgetting, I would argue, are often individual strategies of coping and surviving. And I turn to Veena Das, the well-known anthropologist, on this. She has written, and I just quote a sentence, let us not forget that before monuments of memory were built to the Shoah, a long period of silence about it had to be gone through. Debate over its historical significance and its place in the heritage of the West developed very slowly, unquote. Bhisham Sani, the well-known Hindi writer, said this about Tamas, a work about the partition, which he wrote in 1973. He said, I couldn't have written it a day earlier. There was a lot of coming to terms that had to be gone through. This was an answer to a question that I had asked him, and this was a question I asked in 1995, where I asked him, I said, why did you write the novel a quarter century after 1947? He had been a player in 1947. Veena Das rightly points out that the model of trauma and witnessing that has been bequeathed to us from Holocaust studies cannot be simply transported to other contexts in which violence is embedded into different patterns of sociality. When I visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., I came away with the thought that in the case of the Jews and the Nazis, the perpetrators were one identifiable political social group and the victims an equally identifiable group. Also, the genocide was terrible, horrific, inhuman, but it was over. Collective memory and societal determination would ensure that it was over. This came home to me on a visit to a concentration camp on the German border, on the Franco-German border, where I saw droves of school children coming in from Italy in these huge buses, who we learned on inquiry were being taken quite routinely to visit such sites, to drive home the point again that this must never happen again. In the Indian case, Hindus and Muslims, the two main communities in India, continued to live together separately. After partition, periods of peace interrupted ever too often by episodes of barbaric brutality. Conflict was endemic in some cities and some areas, and those who suffered communal violence often referred to it as another partition, as the Sikh widows of 1984 said to many of us. There is a sense in which the partition continues to live on. There is also a sense in which there are no clear-cut villains and victims. That is, community X could be victims in Y place, but perpetrators in Z place and vice versa. Perhaps the concept of popular genocide, which has been advanced by Mehmood Mamdani in a very important work called When Victims Became Killers, Colonialism, nativism, and the genocide in Rwanda might help us to understand the complex violence in India. Uh, it might be a better model if we are looking at models than the Holocaust. This is just an you know, assertion I'm making. I'm willing to talk about this later. Also, we forget that the Holocaust archival project, the Shoah, had huge resources. The works trained psychiatrists who assisted survivors in giving them, telling their stories, a cathartic 
healing turn. It set me thinking about remembering. Was there a way to remember which was therapeutic as appeared to be in the case of the Shoah? Rather than one which was sometimes the case with the collection of testimonies of the survivors of the Indian partition with initiatives that even I was associated with, which opened up wounds and did not then go the extra step towards closure. Things are changing now in India. The 1947 partition archives works with psychologists who are trained in post-traumatic stress disorder to help interviewees cope. Some of you might not know about this, but this has been founded in Berkeley by Gunita Bhalla and now has a huge presence, the 47 Partition Archive, across many countries and works with Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, diaspora, people associated with partition. Um, they have recorded over 5,500 testimonies in 12 languages. And um, I can talk about it a little later if you want. Now, two decades ago, stories of partition, especially about women, began to be gathered. Those who wrote about them would have it, and I'm referring to Menon and Basin and Butalia here, that the dirges of partition had been drowned in what they call the celebratory anthems of freedom. It was even argued that this was deliberate because they upset the status narrative of the nation, of our nation, our women. <clears throat> One such interviewer spoke to my mother some two decades ago about her experiences in Lahore, a city in what is today Pakistan and where she lived, on the eve of partition. This episode gave out somewhat contradictory messages. The first message was, for me, that my mother's story brought out the involvement of my father in the riots, about which we had no idea. We knew he broadly had sympathies with what we call the Hindu communal point of view, but he had Muslim friends, he was a public figure in his community and in legal circles and in the world of books. I was dismayed to know this about my father and that my mother hadn't shared this with us. Maybe the second part was probably the greater sense of disappointment. The other message was that my mother was quite uneasy for a while after the recording of her story. So perhaps telling stories of partition wasn't quite as easy with our freedom storytellers. When I say freedom storytellers, as uh, you, know, you had just introduced me, that I spent maybe a decade or so on uh, before I started to teach on this amazing project on the oral history of the freedom struggle, where we did some 1,500 interviews across the country with peasants, activists, workers, etc. And on the basis of that, we uh, together wrote a book called India's Struggle for Independence, which, you know, became, uh, he was a huge success. Now, so maybe it was different when you're just talking about your lives, which are in non-conflict kind of situations. So maybe in the case of telling stories about conflict, old wounds opened up. Perhaps silence had been a sanctuary, or maybe it was just escapism. This address tries to analyze the practice of oral history of the partition of India and the experience of the community archives linked with the troubles in Northern Ireland to develop a framework for interpreting memory work. 
drawing on the reconciliation initiatives in South Africa, but which had huge problems for me because I found there was too much of a kind of pressure on reconciliation, you know, uh, on, within, that, the, within the commission and drawing on the mega Holocaust memorial projects, which I just spoke about, commemoration projects at a local level, and community-based oral history groups in Northern Ireland, and oral history archival initiatives in India are giving a new meaning to memory work, orienting it to show a way out of trauma, to bring a closure. In fact, when I turned to Northern Ireland two years ago and started looking at some of the oral history initiatives there, that for the first time I thought, well, here's a perspective that is being actually practiced, which might hold, us, hold out some promise for us back in India. That I should look to Ireland wasn't surprising. Ireland and India, as I said in the beginning, were former British colonies that saw strong movements for freedom culminating in the retreat of the imperial power, leaving behind in both cases the troubled legacy of a divided nation. When I came here in 2016 to Trinity College, I felt rather than looking at the Irish partition of almost a century ago, it would make much more sense from a comparative perspective with India to look at the troubles, which were more recent and, you know, the connections could be easier made. This division between communities in Ireland was very much akin to the conflict still present in India. That is a continued conflict which has a political expression and which at a cultural and social level sees expression in all kinds of ways. The troubles half a century after the partition of Ireland showed that the conflict was again, like ours, a continuing one. It was not only about Catholic Protestant, the aspirations of the North and South, Republican Unionist, continue to be different. Ireland, consisting of 32 counties, was the South's objective till very recently, questioning the very existence of Northern Ireland. Conflict was endemic in India too, but in Ireland, there was huge hope after the peace settlement of the 90s, whereas in India, very sadly, we are moving closer towards a situation given the fact that we've had uh, right-wing regime at present, at the core of which lies embedded a vision of hatred for the other. The peace process in Ireland showed the will to come together, and vital in this were initiatives from below to make peace with the past. Community council-level oral history projects and archives, sometimes formed with the objective of getting justice for victims, and with the idea of, and that's the name of one such initiative, it's called Healing Through Remembering. I went to Belfast, crossing the imperceptible border, which Brexit might bring back, walked down Falls Road in Belfast, went along the Peace Wall, gazed at the murals in both Shankill Road and Falls Road, emblematic of a divided imagination. The Disabled Police Officers Association, the Pat Finnegan Center, the Ardoin Commemoration Project, One Small Step Campaign, Sinn Féin, and the Falls Community Council, just see the names of some of these uh, organizations, interestingly representing divergent groups, were of the view that storytelling was the best bet for individual and indeed societal healing. There were official inquiries too, 
And again, this was very unusual for us in India, where we've not even thought of the possibility of a state-level inquiry into these issues. Uh, for example, the Savile inquiry into the infamous uh, Bloody Sunday, the day on which 14 civil rights protesters were shot at in Londonderry in 1972, and official commissions, one led by Bloomsfield, another called the Consultative Group on the Past, that's 2009, which recommended the establishment of interestingly called a legacy commission to deal with issues arising from the past political violence. There was a historical inquiries team, a unit within the police force of Northern Ireland, and of course the police ombudsman office. The prison's memory archive, again something in total contrast to India, where again this would be unthinkable to have such an archive within the prison, and we could learn from this, has recorded 34 individuals who were connected to Armagh Jail during the conflict, including loyalist and Republican prisoners, both men and women, prison officers, teachers, <coughs> welfare workers, solicitors, visitors, and chaplains, that is, people from all different groups. In a very interestingly titled essay called The Burden of Memory, um, Hackett and Rolstrom, one an activist in the field and one an academic, point out that in unofficial storytelling, the atmosphere is relaxed, but the limitation is that you are limited to your own community. And you, don't, you tend not to impact society as a whole. So most groups in Northern Ireland do not know the stories of other groups which is, again, I thought something very interesting. On the other hand, an official commission produces a narrative and lends legitimacy to stories recounted to it. It's a bit like court proceedings. Another aspect of these oral history initiatives was that when victims tend to intend to create change through public storytelling, they do so by drawing listeners into the wider campaign of change. That is, let me just explain this a minute. Victims telling stories in the pursuit of justice and social transformation expose the structural forces at work in society. Jim McCabe, a victim of state violence, cautioned. He said, when you are a victim of the state, you are recognized as an enemy of the state and treated as such, whether you want to be or not. However, Telling the truth is important, as you are telling it in the face of public denial. Margaret Carraher, a relative of a victim, spoke about her brother's death and emphasized how important it was to do so, however painful it was that memory was for her, because she said, we must make it evident to all that the system is complicit in what has happened. So this takes the impact of storytelling beyond individual healing to societal change and perhaps societal <laughs> healing. Another project in North Belfast, which was extremely interesting, called the Ardoin Commemoration Project, was a project which was set up to commemorate the death of people due to conflict. Its aim was to create a space where people who had been silenced all these years could tell their story. This reminded me so much of the work that 
uh, women's groups have done in conflict zones like Colombia and South America, where these spaces are created where women can come and share and live and tell their stories. Um, the Falls Community Council's Oral History Archive, Duchas, is that? Duchas. is from nationalist, working class, conflict-ridden Belfast. I had walked down Falls Road recently with its green bars and green buntings and its infant office. Conflicting accounts coexist and are available in digital format. What was interesting to me coming from India and with my experience in oral history was that the life story method was adopted here. That is, the, and I'll just explain this in a minute. Um, this is how it's described. It's, um, Originally, we began the interview collection by interviewing people affected by defining events of the conflict, such as the attacks on Catholic homes in August 1969, the introduction of internment in 1971, the hunger strikes of 1980 and 1981, and so on. However, as the project progressed, and this is in the words of one of the people who are the, who's the practitioner there. He writes, he says, as the project progressed, we began to adopt a life history approach to the interviews, asking people about their early years and moving the interview through their life. This mirrors our experience in India, our experiences in the field in India, in the oral history project that I mentioned on the national movement in India, was that we were getting pet or rather pat answers to all our questions, almost as if they were rehearsed and we were getting the party line all the time, particularly with the communists whom we were inter uh, you know, interviewing them, a large numbers of them. And after a while, we decided to consign our laboriously constructed questionnaires to the back of our heads and we started to record life stories. And this is what has been the experience of the 1947 Partition Archive too. Again, I'm quoting Bhalla here, the founder of this archive. She writes, we record their whole life story. The interview always ends with where they are today. So they are brought back to how they had the strength to carry on. It's very different from an, a simple interview in which you're asking questions, in which then very often the interviewee is just kind of left there, as it were, with no way of getting back to their lives today. Also, we found with the life story method, something which is we realized was what we call the fallacy of hindsight, that that's is something which doesn't work here. That is, if I'm standing here and, I'm, and you ask me a question and I go back in time, so... My thinking is as me today. That's what I'm thinking. But if you start off a person when they're five and then you take them through the whole of their life, even if you only want to know what they did when they were 60, in a way, it's not like remembering. It's like living the life through. And you very often get a very different story from when you were to just have a kind of question-answer method. So this was absolutely fascinating how the two experiences in two very different zones and situations had led to very similar realizations about this method. Now, another initiative which was very interesting and which I'll share with you was one where the United Nations Special Representative for Children, an armed conflict, 
was a member of a team along with experts from South Africa and elsewhere, and they were taken to various zones and sites to meet community groups and children in their homes and neighborhoods. And I'm talking about Northern Ireland here. And the book which has come out is Notes of This Visit, which are fascinating. The notes of these visits, kind of field notes, revealed the hostility between communities and the layers of bitterness in young children left the visitors stunned. In Orange Field, for example, one boy said that he wanted to nuke the Falls Road. And he justified participating in parades and paramilitias. In Shankill Road in West Belfast, visitors found the peace walls unsightly when they, when they went down them. And then they were told by young Protestants that if they developed romantic relationships with Catholics, they were called Fenian lovers, the reference being to the Sinn Féin. Visitors were shocked at being told that writing, quote, was fun. Their assessment was, that is, the members of this group, uh, which, as I said, had people from many different countries, their assessment was that the children's behavior was typical of what they called a survivor's culture. That is one in which the survivor denies that their activity is high risk or something which was wrong in any way. In the rural areas, it was found that people had more of a sense of being victims Poverty and powerlessness were mixed with hatred and fear. A young child expressed his fear that a Catholic with a big metal bar would walk into a crowd and hit people. This takes me back to India. In the article, to the article I wrote on oral history a couple of years ago, where I spoke of remembering and forgetting, not silence or telling, that is not binaries of that. This goes back to the 19th century philologist, Ernest Renan, his piece called What is a Nation? Writing in 1882, he stressed the importance of forgetting in the process of the nation hanging together, particularly this was in the context of France and its very uncomfortable medieval pasts when there were a huge number of massacres of different groups in different parts of the country. Um, I found the same emphasis on placing remembering and forgetting together and indeed an even better term called reparative remembering which was put forward in a work by Graham Dawson called Making Peace with the Past, question mark, Trauma Memory in Northern Ireland, which I read in the library at Trinity. And when I was here two years ago as a fellow at Trinity, I was able to go down to the University of Brighton, where Dawson is based, uh, to meet up with him and discuss many issues of common interest you know, to be sharing experiences from Ireland and India. Writing about the conflict in Northern Ireland, uh, the article that I mentioned earlier, The Burden of Memory, I just quoted one line again, the task facing societies coming out of conflict is to find ways to encourage storytelling so that those who tell the stories can do so in safety. And those who listen are mobilized into dealing with the legacy of past violence and working together to prevent future violence. This would promote a memory 
and a history in which there is forgiveness as well as remembering. Remembering, There is a tendency in many societies of keeping your story, your grief, to yourself. As a member of the victim support group WAVE, I'm again talking about Ireland now, put it, part of our problem is that we have been brought up in a culture where we did not tell our stories. When my father was shot in 1969, you did not tell your story. You kept it in-house. You dealt with it. Another person who went on to tell his tale confessed, but I certainly never grieved properly because I was out there being busy and I never stopped to actually grieve. This was said about Ireland, but could well be true about India. Let me end with closure. I believe that closure is not only about telling. It is about grieving too, especially collective grieving. Satish Gujral's Mourning Omas shows a group of Punjabi women huddled together, their bodies very close to each other, in a collective ritual of mourning that in Punjabi we call siapa. It's a kind of collective, you know, during mourning women would cry and they would, the whole idea is that they would sit very close together and there's a kind of collective wailing. When I spoke of this at Trinity, uh, a girl in the audience drew my attention to a practice called keening uh, in Ireland associated with funerary rituals. It's a kind of traditional form of lament in which there would be wailing and weeping for a dead person. And she even gave me a CD of a film in which this had been uh, picturized. Um, I'll just stop at that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this History Hill podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps such as Podcast Republic. If you enjoy our content, please rate and review our channel as it helps others to find out about our work.